said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you. All right, I'm sitting here in the dining room of Dr. Stanley Krippner, world-renowned psychologist, researcher, and man about town <laughs> in San Rafael. Thanks for doing this with us, Stanley. Yes, I'm man about town. I live in San Rafael. We have about 300,000 people here, so that's an apt description. It's a town, but I'm not a man about the city. <laughs> exactly. A man about a small town. I've known Stanley since when? Since the mid-90s, I guess. And uh, I was talking to a friend earlier today, trying to remember all the countries we've been to together. I came up with Argentina, Venezuela, Mexico, Morocco, Spain, Portugal, Germany, India. Uh, did I say Venezuela? Uh, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm missing some. I and forgot. the Netherlands. The Netherlands. That's right. We've been to the Netherlands. Morocco. Germany. Germany. We were at a at a shamanism conference. A very and historic shamanism conference. Yes. That was one of the strangest things ever. It was in a German ski resort. Do you remember the name of the town? I don't remember. Garmisch. 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 Right? Yeah. And um, it was the strangest thing to see all these very conservative. Uh, Bavarians, I think it was in Bavaria, walking around, and the, the little village was full of shamans from all over the world. I Every inhabited continent, <laughs> it was, including Australia and Africa. Uh, that was quite a sight. I'm sure the, the people, the natives, were wondering what was going on that weekend. And so many people wanted to come to the conference that every hotel room in Darmstadt was full and people were booking hotel rooms 50 and 60 miles away wow. just to attend the conference. Wow. Well, I've been incredibly uh, uh, blessed to have you schlepping me around all over the world during those years. I was in graduate school at Saybrook where you teach, and uh, somehow I lucked out and, and uh, was able to be your uh, luggage carrier there for, for a few years. Well, you lucked out because you lived so close to Lascaux, the famed caves of Lascaux that have exquisitely beautiful paintings. And you said that you would rent a car and we could both go to Lascaux if I could get permission. So I got permission from the French Minister of Culture. And the day that we were to leave, you had locked the keys in the rental car. <laughs> That's true. That's and a true story. And by the time the Hertz representative came, we'd lost about three hours. And so we didn't stop to get a place to stay. We just went full speed to Lascaux. And we got to Lascaux just as they were reading the names of the people who were being admitted that day. Exactly. I remember. I, I, it was so tight, I remember saying, okay, I'll park. You just go up and tell them we're here. And then I'll run up with our jackets. And it was, it was very intense. But then, luckily, because I had been such an idiot and locked the keys in the car, one of the, the people who was with us, I think there were only half a dozen people per day who were allowed in, uh, was a very wealthy woman. We didn't know that at the time, but she said, uh, oh, I have a little house, a little country house. If you guys need a place to stay, you can follow me, and I've got an extra room. 
And you remember, we drove to this place behind her. And I remember in the car saying, all right, if this is strange, we're going to make it. We had all our excuses worked out, remember? And it ended up being a chateau. It was, were there horses in the field? I remember oh, yes. horses. And, she was and going to a party that night and she let us um, have the run of the house. She fixed delicious French soup for us and pulled together a quick supper. And then hours later, she came back with an anthropologist who invited us to see the imitation Lascaux the next day. Right. He had designed the, 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 the Lascaux replica that's open to the public, I think. That's right. That was wonderful. And people that don't see the real Lascaux aren't missing a thing because it is an exact replica down to the colors and the shapes and the sizes of the animals. Yeah. And so we saw two Lascaux for the price of one. Yeah, it was amazing. That was one of, one of many adventures we had. I remember the first trip I went on with you before I even really knew you at all was to Brazil. I was telling uh, my friend Yvonne about that in the car on the way here today. And I remember I didn't know you at all. And I remember we were sort of taking a walk around town the first uh, day we were there. And I asked you some question and you gave me sort of a, you know, a normal answer. And then I followed up the question. And I remember you stopped and looked me right in the eye and you said, oh, you want the truth. Okay, then we'll talk about the truth. And from then on, I, our friendship was uh, very special. It was it clicked in very quickly. You sort of recognized, uh, you know, that, it, that our frequency didn't have to deal in bullshit, which which I liked a lot. That's right. This was a trip to Brazil that we took with two friends of mine, both of whom are now college professors and outstanding psychologists in their own right, and. We were in Salvador, Brazil, and we ate in this wonderful restaurant, which is worldwide known, and they, have a, they had a picture of Hillary Clinton eating in the restaurant. <laughs> and they served a wonderful seafood dish. And I am so used to Brazilian food that it didn't affect me, but a couple of our companions were up all night running to the bathroom. Hmm. I don't think that one got me. I think the one no, that got me was the ayahuasca in uh, Puerto Alegre. No, no, the, the food didn't get you, <laughs> but the ayahuasca did. Yeah, that, that was a whole other adventure. That right? was a hell of an adventure. I, I'll talk about that in another podcast, maybe. Um, but I, I wanted to, to just sort of uh, tell people who you are very briefly, people who aren't familiar with your work. I guess you sort of... Your first um, scientific prominence came about because of your research at the Dream Lab at uh, Maimonides in New York. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And when was that? 68, 9? That was back in the early 1960s. Oh, in the early 60s. Yes. Oh. Um, I graduated from Northwestern University in 1961, and I spent three years at Kent State University and then I came to Maimonides and stayed there until the middle 70s. And at that point, we ran out of money. And I came to San Francisco because my friends were just starting a new university devoted to humanistic and existential psychology, Saybrook University. And I have been there ever since. Yeah, lucky for them. 
You're the, you're the North Star of Seabrook. Well, lucky for me, too, because at Seabrook, people can explore different human behaviors and experiences that they can't really explore anyplace else. Everything from ayahuasca, the mind-altering beverage from South America, to telepathic dreams, which was the topic of our research in the Dream Laboratory, to mate selection among early humans. <laughs> For example, to pick one at random. Yeah. Yes, which turned into a best-selling book. Well, you're just to, to sort of summarize the research, correct me if I'm wrong, but the research you did uh, at, at Maimonides that is still referred to in uh, any book talking about the, the most solid um, investigation of um, psi, I guess we, c we can call it psi, telepathy and ultra, um, uh, paranormal sort of uh, experiences and events. Um, basically, the research, you were looking at whether or not people were more receptive to telepathic imagery. Is it Was it during a REM stage or hypnopompic, hypnagogic states? We checked out all three. All three. Okay. And, of course, most dreams come in rapid eye movement sleep. But we also checked with people as they were drifting into sleep, which is the hypnagogic state, and when they're coming out of sleep, which is the hypnopompic state. And much to our surprise, we found that they were even more telepathic in the hypnagogic and hypnopompic state. Hmm. The place where they were not especially telepathic was in the small dreams that they had outside of rapid eye movement sleep. Uh -huh. Those were very down-to-earth, very simple. They didn't have a lot of metaphors, a lot of symbols in them. And so we, we ran the gamut in terms of that particular investigation. We published close to 100 articles, Dr. Montague Ullman and myself, who was the director of the project, noted psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and we published in every major psychiatric journal and several prominent psychological journals. And now that work has been repeated, mainly in the United Kingdom at various universities, and most of the results are robust. They're as strong as ours, not quite as strong, but still strong enough to um, be above chance. Just for example, so that your listeners will know a little bit about the experiment, we would have a volunteer participant come in and have dinner with one of our psychologists who established rapport, and then the volunteer would go into a soundproof room and have electrodes attached to his or her head so that we would know when they were asleep and dreaming and when the rapid eye movement slip would occur. The psychologist would throw dice, and the dice would direct the psychologist to a double-sealed envelope. Why double-sealed? Because if it's single-sealed, you could maybe look up at the light and see the image inside of it. Anyway, he took that to the other side of the building, opened it up, and there was a, an art print by Picasso, Van Gogh, Gauguin, you name it. And he's choosing from how many possible envelopes? Um... If we were going to do a 12-night study, it would be 12 or 13 possible envelopes. Okay. And so, on one night, for example, 
The image was Saul Bellows painting both members of the club about a boxing match, and the dreamer, who was an artist, had a series of dreams in which he went to Madison Square Garden to buy tickets to a boxing match, and there were posters of the boxing match all over the walls of Madison Square Garden. And someone else receives the postcard, and they're trying to transmit this imagery to the sleeping person. Yeah, the artist was the sleeping participant, and the psychologist at the other end of the building... Oh, the psychologist is transmitting. ...was looking at the picture, trying to send the picture, and the sleeping subject was trying to receive the picture. Right. And and then you took a transcript of the dream, yes. of, of the, the dreamer's account yes, of his yes, or her they dream. Yes, typed out word for word, tape recorded. And then outside judges who were experts on dreams would try to match each picture with each possible target. So they would look at all 13 of the pictures. Not only that, they'd look at pictures from the whole study. If we uh. had 12 nights in a study, there would be something like... 12 times 12. 144 possible. Okay, 144 matches, and they would match every one of those. And then we were able to compare the correct matches with the incorrect matches to see if the correct matches produced a rating on a scale from 1 to 100 above chance or not. Right, right. And that's why this research is still being cited. The methodology is so strong. Uh, and, you know, you, you've said this to me many times that the research in parapsychology, the methodology has to be ironclad because there's so much skepticism. Yeah. Oh, yes. And that's a good thing. It yeah, it's fair it enough. It has to be ironclad. Uh, Ray Hyman is a professor at the University of Oregon. He is probably the outstanding a skeptic and critic of parapsychological research, and he has examined our dream research, and he has said in a published interview, there's no smoking gun. Mm-hmm. In other words, he could not, could not find any flaws in the research. Right. The only problem he cited was you don't get results every time you do it. Right. And I would agree with him. Right. Uh, we don't know why we don't get results every time we do it, There's some variable that is just here sometimes, gone sometimes else, but you look at the overall pattern and say that you have 10 direct hits like the boxing match hit out of 12 possible uh, trials, well, that's way above chance when 6 out of 12 would be chance. Right, right. One of the many things that makes you a unique figure is that you've done this research, but you also are a skeptic. You're, you're someone who's respected by both sides of the parapsychology debate. I mean, you, you've told me about how you've been on, was it The Tonight Show or Mike Douglas Show or something with the amazing Kreskin, and your job was to try to find the tricks, right, to, to, uh, to, to give some scientific validity or not to what these people were claiming. And I was also on the show with the amazing Randy, and he was recently interviewed about me. And he paid me a nice compliment. He said that he had met me several times, and he could find no bias one way or the other toward the topic of uh, 
parapsychology. Right. So you're, that was a nice compliment. That's the highest compliment. You're the only, here's another compliment. You're the only person I know who has several people in their Rolodex whose names begin with the amazing. I don't know anyone called the amazing anything. And you know several, you've got several personal friends called the amazing this or the amazing that. That, that's a pretty interesting, <laughs> a pretty interesting quality. Well, I have to say they are amazing. They deserve their title. <laughs> well, we should call you the amazing Stanley, I think, from now on. That, oh, that... there's enough amazing people in the world. <laughs> I'd, I'll take some other name. Okay. So now I mentioned these TV shows, but you've also gone around the world. You've told me about uh, the research you did in Brazil. You've been to the Philippines always investigating psychic healers, some of the psychic surgeons, was yes. it, in the Philippines? Yes. Mm -hmm. These people who claim to be thrusting their hands into someone's body and pulling out right. ailing organs and things like that. What was the story? I remember on one of our long drives somewhere asking you the most incredible experience that you had had along these lines. And I remember you telling me a story about a Brazilian mystic that you had taken into the jungle with uh, with uh, Ian Wickram, I think it was, and you were measuring electromagnetic fields around the house and all this stuff. Yeah, Do you not remember with that? Ian Wickram with Michael Winkler. Michael Winkler, the okay. name sound alike. Michael <laughs> Winkler was uh, the psychology graduate student I brought down for that particular uh, trip. But Amira Amadin was, for lack of a better term, a mystic or a psychic. But he was also a secretary of his trade union. He had a day job. And when he came to the attention of Pierre Weil, the president of the City of Peace in Brasilia, Brazil, Pierre thought that this would be just the type of person I would like to investigate. The only problem is I didn't have equipment or the money to get a video camera and bring it down. Oh. And so an interesting things happening, like polished stones falling out of nowhere, or medallions appearing on a table. Related to someone's daughter's birthday? Yes, you have a that? good memory. Um, one of the psychologists says, my daughter is turning 12 this week. You have a birthday present for her. And immediately... Out of nowhere popped this lovely ring with 12 little rhinestones set in it. And when you say it popped, it fell from the ceiling? It or? seemed to fall out of no place. We heard a pop, and there it was, flying through the air, landing on the ground. Yes. And you're sitting at the table with this mystic and some of the other researchers? Yes. And it, it wasn't coming from him? He wasn't throwing things? Well, not as far as we could see, because sometimes these things happened in another room or even another building. Right. And and you were outside on the driveway and, and yes, stones were falling the from the sky? Yes, outside on the driveway stones fell down while he was in the house having, di having dinner. Yeah. And I patiently went around, picked them up, and looked at the timing. Because you mentioned the geomagnetic field. Yes, this was very important. Because Michael Winkler spent much of the time with a geomagnetometer, the only one in the city in Brasilia that we borrowed from the university, and every two minutes he would notice what the readings were. And then when it ran out of juice, he would come back and join us in the uh, 
in the offices, but whenever the geomagnetic indexes were high, this is when the phenomena were extremely intense. Hmm. Now, geomagnetic readings are high when there are electrical storms, when there's sunspot activity, when there's a lot of electricity going through the atmosphere. And we got actually statistically significant results when we paired the time of these phenomena against the geomagnetic index at the time. This is something that had never been done. Did the, the geomagnetic field uh, uh, precede the event? In other words, was, was there already a change when the stones fell yes, from the it, sky? You might say it preceded the event. So it's like a context in which the event took place. It, that, that is correct. Now, you see, I'm always interested in what the measurable aspects of these phenomena are. And so you can get a handle on it. Well, in retrospect... I had saved all of the nights of our dream telepathy research, and we had about 90 people who were there one or more nights, and I divided them into people who had gotten hits or had gotten misses, and gotten high hits or high misses in terms of this scale that we used, and checked the geomagnetic index on that particular night because the U.S. Coast and Geodetic Survey keeps very good records. Now, here we found that with telepathy, the results were very, very strong, but just the opposite. Telepathy functioned best on the calm nights. Oh, interesting. And didn't function much at all on the stormy nights. Right. You, you said, I remember uh, a conversation in which we were talking about your sort of general conclusions about people who, who claim to have paranormal abilities. And I remember you saying something like that your sense after how many years have you been researching this? 50 years or something. Yes. Yeah. Uh, was that some people do have uh, inborn abilities to see things the rest of us can't see and to predict things and but that ability comes and goes and it's out of their control. And so a lot of these people, because they, uh, they, they, be, they get ego investment, they learn tricks to compensate for when the ability's not there. Yes. So even if someone's caught, you know, doing a trick, you know, to that doesn't necessarily mean they're a complete fraud. It right. might just mean that that particular day the the vision wasn't there, so they they you know did a trick to compensate for it. I, f I found that to be very interesting because we have a very you know black or white vision of these things. Yes, well, it causes severe problems for researchers. Right, sure, because once someone's caught, uh, then there's no there's no coming back from that. Yeah, they're, they're considered a fraud. Nobody will do p research with them. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you began, uh, you, you grew up in Wisconsin, is that right, on yes, a farm? Yes, that's right. And as a kid, you learned to do magic tricks. Yes. Which sort of led you into this research, maybe, because yes. you were familiar with how tricks work and how attention can be deflected and that sort of thing? 
Yes, and it's a good thing I did learn how to do magic because it enables me to pretty well discern if a so-called psychic is using sleight of hand to uh, create these effects. Right, right. Now, at what point did you get interested in altered states of consciousness and shamanism and this sort of stuff? I got interested in altered states of consciousness by observing my dreams. I had some very memorable dreams, and I started a dream diary when I was in high school, and I've recorded literally thousands of dreams throughout the years. And I kept up my interest in dreams, and when I got this offer to join the research team at Maimonides Medical Center, I, I literally jumped at it, even though there was no guarantee that it would be a, a permanent job. Well, the money lasted for 10 years, which is longer than it usually lasts in, in such endeavors. And then you asked how I became interested in something else. What in al altered states of consciousness and shamanism? I was interested in shamanism, and some of your listeners might not know what a shaman is, a shaman is a very special type of healer in indigenous societies and in native societies who claims to be able to talk to spirits, to animals, and to use extraordinary means of uh, not only healing, but weather forecasting, mediating disputes in tribes and among families, and sort of uh, passing on the mythology of the culture. Well, I was interested in shamanism because I had a long-standing interest in Native Americans. When my father would plow the field, he would sometimes plow Indian arrowheads. And I found out that the Potawatomi Indians used to live on our territory. And so I began reading about uh, Native Americans. And... When I was at Maimonides, I was once on a panel with a well-known shaman from, uh, from upstate New York, and this was my first contact with, uh, with a real-life, honest-to-goodness shaman, and so I listened attentively. Her name was Grandmother Twyla Nitsch. She was a Seneca shaman. And then, through a serendipitous series of events involving the Grateful Dead, I met Rolling Thunder, who was an intertribal medicine man. And my latest book that I wrote with his grandson is called The Voice of Rolling Thunder. But I have taken the opportunity to learn from shamans and visit them and work with them over the decades and have had some remarkable experiences, especially with the South American shamans and Native American shamans from North America. You've met Marina Sabina, is that right? Yes, that was one of the highlights of my life when I was in college. I read a Life magazine article 
by Gordon Wasson. Oh, that's the fateful article. That's the article that sort of triggered the entire 60s movement in some Yes, ways. that's right. And he that's had, the article Leary read as well, right? Right. He didn't use Maria Sabina's real name, but it didn't take people long to find out who she was. And he talked about how he, as a mushroom expert, and his wife, Valentina, uh, paid a couple of visits to Oaxaca, and at first people denied that they used the mushrooms. They said, oh, no, we're all good Roman Catholics. That's paganism. That's something that was done in the past. And then Maria Sabina stepped up and said, we have been using the sacred mushrooms for years. Yes, we're all good Catholics, but the priest supports our veladas, our mushroom ceremonies. And I have been told by Jesus that I am supposed to initiate you into the velada. So Gordon Wasson found himself eating sacred mushrooms <laughs> and went on his first psychedelic trip in which he observed his son in a very anguished, depressed state of mind. And so as soon as he got back to the United States, of course, he phoned his son and found out, yes, indeed, his son was in a bad way, and he interceded at just the right time. Well, that sold him on the importance of the sacred mushroom ceremony, and in the last several years of his life, he devoted time and money not only to studying mushrooms, but other mind-altering plants. And... Uh, I was fortunate enough to meet him at Harvard University when his book Soma came out and they had a book launch for it. And he believes that the Soma of the Hindu tradition actually was uh, their memories of the sacred mushroom. Right, Amanita muscaria, if, if I'm yes, not mistaken. Yes, Amanita muscaria, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so you met Wasson, and and he was no hippie. He was a retired insurance vice president or something, yes, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. From Hartford. Banker. Yes. And his wife was Hungarian, Czech. Yes. Do you, do you remember? She, I remember she was from a country where people habitually went out mushroom collecting, and that was really her passion for mushrooms. Yes, it was, and so the two them. of them had, uh, uh, for different reasons, a, a great interest. They wrote a wonderful book called Mushrooms, Russia, and History. Mm. And that was even before they went down to visit Maria Sabina. Well, I had a psychiatrist friend who knew Maria Sabina, and when I read that article in Life magazine back in the early 1950s, I had no idea that in the early 1970s I would be on an expedition to the little town of Hawatla de Jimenez and I would actually visit Maria Sabina and be allowed to take photographs of her and do an interview with her. Probably the last photographs ever taken of her. One of my friends was a professional photographer and those photographs have been... Uh, published in, in many of my articles and books, and we had a uh, incredible visit with her when we arrived at again the next day. And so I have in my possession a collector's item. It's the chance of Maria Sabina on the old 78 RPM discs that Gordon Wasson put out for posterity. 
in Mazatec language translated into Spanish and translated into English. Wow. Wow. You, you mentioned Harvard, uh, meeting Gordon Wasson at Harvard. You also met Timothy Leary, if I'm not mistaken, yes. and had an uh, interesting experience with him. Do, well, do you want to talk about that? Yes. I went to the American Psychological Association when Tim was giving a lecture on psilocybin because at that time he was doing very legitimate research and was getting pure psilocybin from the Sandoz Company in Switzerland. And he was on a panel, if I remember correctly, with Gerald Hurd and William Burroughs and I decided right then and there that I was going to try to take it myself, mm. see what all the excitement was about. And how old were you at this point? Oh, I was at that time at Kent State University. That was back in the early 1960s. So you were in graduate school. No, I was out of graduate school. Oh, you were teaching at I Kent was State. Teaching. Uh -huh. And so I wrote to him and he invited me to be a research participant and I had a personal interview with him and he said you're just the type of person that we would like to be a participant in the studies and I'll schedule something tomorrow night but in the meantime I'm going to invite you to a dinner party I'm having for Alan Watts well Alan Watts of course was a great hero of mine and eventually I got to know Alan Watts very very well and actually spent more time with him than I spent with Timothy Leary and could see where they diverged and disagreed on a number of things. Alan Watts was of the frame of mind that these experiences should be very carefully regulated and could be best handled by what you might call an intellectual and artistic elite, while Timothy Leary sort of went off the deep end and said, turn on, tune in, and drop out. He thought they could change society. Right. He wanted them, like, available to the masses. Yes. And did, did Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley, uh, did they know each other? Because yes, I know Huxley, Huxley shared that view. the same way. Yeah. I never got to meet Aldous Huxley, but I did become friends with Laura Huxley, his second wife. Right. Wonderful woman, and she uh, was of the same state of mind. In fact, she gave Aldous Huxley um, LSD as he was dying so that he could have a very, very beautiful death. Yeah, yeah. That was in, that was the day Kennedy was shot, right? Yes, yes, yes. He and Kennedy died the same day. Hmm. So you were talking about, uh, you went to the dinner party then uh, with uh, Leary the night before you were scheduled to do Yes, your... and I heard Alan Watts and something, it, it, he was of course marvelous, he was a great entertainer and now there is a new book co-edited by one of my former Saybrook students um, Alan Watts Here and Now, it's a collection of articles about Alan Watts and I think his importance in philosophy and psychology and in Eastern studies has finally been recognized. Indeed, he is and was a very, very pivotal person. But I ate something at that dinner party that had some toxic element in it because I was up the whole night 
heaving and going to the bathroom. And the next morning, my friend at Harvard, who I was staying with, who was supposed to take psilocybin with me, said, I don't think you're in any mood to take psilocybin tonight. Hmm. And I said, I will struggle through somehow. <laughs> so we were going to have an orientation session with Tim's research assistants, and I had my friend Steve literally drag me to the room half an hour early so I could sit down and be oriented and be prepared by Alan and Sarah, our two guides. And as soon as they left the room, I ran to the bathroom and threw up. And my friend Steve said, I don't see how you're going to do it tonight. I said, just get me there. So we got to the apartment where we were to take psilocybin, and Timothy Leary showed up with his psilocybin and gave it to us. Then he had to leave. He had an appointment with the local police. Oh. Yes, yes, things are sort of beginning to fall apart. Well, half an hour after I took psilocybin, all vestiges of my indigestion and diarrhea disappeared. Hmm. And I had a simply marvelous trip and have written it up in an article called Music to Eat Mushrooms By, which has been reprinted time and time again in various anthologies. But the only tragic thing about that trip, this was in the early 1960s, was that I had an image of Abraham Lincoln with a pistol smoking at the base of his head. It was a silhouette, and somebody has said, the president has been shot. And then Lincoln morphed into Kennedy, and again, his head was bowed, and somebody shouted out, the president has been shot. Well, I wrote that up in the account of the trip that I sent to many, many people, and unfortunately, a year later, that indeed did come to pass. Wow. That's a ver very memorable. That was your first experience. You've had uh, many subsequent experiences with... Yeah, not uh, a lot. A couple of dozen, perhaps, with uh, the various psychedelic agents. Yeah. And did you... How did you view them? Some people view those experiences as educational, others as recreational... Where would you classify uh, experiences with hallucinogens? Well, I learned something from each of them. And I think learn is not quite the right word. I would say it reinforced things I already knew. Uh, again, because I'd read a lot of Alan Watts's books, and I'd read a lot of philosophy, I'd read a lot about Native Americans, and... So I already had a worldview which was quite different than the general American worldview with its emphasis on materialism and possessions and competition and rivalry. And so the psychedelic experiences with peyote, with LSD, with ayahuasca, each taught me something and sort of reinforced and reemphasized what I already knew but often put it in a different context, something that I could put to use. So for me, the experience was basically an educational one. It was spiritual in the sense that I became uh, closer to the earth, 
valued relationships more, valued love and kindness more, and in terms of recreational, I wouldn't have uh, really thought of taking anything like that for recreational purposes because if anything is sacred to me, it's special experiences like this that um, you do not violate. You do not treat casually. There is some way for you to learn from them, to develop spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and ethically from. I agree. Here, here. Let me throw an idea past you. I've been thinking about this recently. Um, in fact, uh, Yvonne and I were talking about it in the car driving down here. Um, an animist, which I think all hunter-gatherers are essentially animists. Their, their deism isn't known in hunter-gatherer societies as far as I'm, I'm aware. An animist looks at the world and sees it alive in all aspects. There are the spirits of the clouds and spirits of the river and spirits of the rocks, and everything is imbued with spirit. And um, one of the things that seems to be an almost universal aspect of a hallucinogenic experience is that you get this sense of life all around you and yeah. things that had seemed or that we were taught are dead inanimate objects suddenly you see them as living things rocks have some sort of spiritual substance that you're able well depending how you look at it either you're tricked into seeing it by some you know toxic chemical or your mind is opened up enough that you see it and um, so I was thinking, I wonder if the day-to-day -day life of an animist is kind of trippy, in a sense, from our perspective. You know, obviously, the brain reaches equilibrium in a chemical sense, in a hormonal or neurotransmitter sense. The brain adapts to, you know, imbalances. So there wouldn't be that sense of um, altered state, right? It would be the normal state of of being aware of of being in this mesh of life that so many people report from hallucinogenic experiences. I wonder if that's close to the daily experience of a, of an animist. Have you ever spoken with anyone about that, or have you? Do you have any any comment on that? Well, I, I have run across that idea from time to time. It's mentioned in some of the descriptions of what life was like among the Mayans and Aztecs before the Spanish invasion. And these people of course, consumed mushrooms, morning glory seeds, peyote, etc. But even aside from that, they were so close to nature and felt that animals and birds were um, siblings, brothers and sisters, not something that uh, one harvested or took advantage of. Yes, they ate them, but they gave prayers before they ate them. They ate each other, too, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's a pretty bad trip. But cannibalism is, is rare um, among Native people. It does occur, and we can't whitewash the fact that um, it 
did and probably still does occur from time to time. But again, there's a purpose for that. If it's your enemy, you eat them out of respect to gain their power. Right. And of course, you know, Marvin Harris's argument that cannibalism is really a function of protein deficiency. That, that certainly makes sense because protein is very important and sometimes it wasn't too, uh, too highly available. Right. And there were no animals that could be domesticated in, in Mexico uh, That's right. that did not compete with humans for the same food sources. Sure. So he, he's written a lot of I mean, another aspect of this this question of of whether or not hallucinogens give us um, a window into normal conscious, normal states of consciousness of an animist is the fact that now there's research being done. Finally, uh, thanks to uh, Rick Doblin and maps and, and people who have been agitating for for uh, legal research into this stuff. There's research being done showing that psilocybin and LSD uh, are very effective in helping people deal with a fear of death. They're being used in uh, terminal cancer patients. Oh, yes. And people are reporting uh, extreme uh, lifting of the weight and the fear and the anxiety surrounding death. Not necessarily because they suddenly believe in, in heaven or, you know, a, an afterlife per se, but just because they, I guess, because they feel embedded in a web of life so whether their state they they transform their state seems less of an issue i'm putting words into people's mouths i guess which no, i not do. actually because just a few weeks ago i was talking with one of the participants in the maryland psychiatric uh consortium's research with psilocybin and he has cancer and he had an absolutely ecstatic experience. He just went on talking about it for almost an hour. And among other things, he, he lost his fear of death because he found himself a part of this matrix, this latticework of the universe, and he had played his role. And after his death, there would be a part of him that would still be, a part, still be part of it all and this uh, oneness um, is something that permeated his whole being. And in addition to perhaps having some health benefits, it certainly had a spiritual benefit for him. Hmm. And I think it's simply criminal that more of this research and more of this therapy has, has not been done literally Tens of thousands of people could have been helped to have a more pleasant and more meaningful death had not the research been terminated back in the 1960s. Now, do you, do you hold Leary responsible for that at all? Leary gave an excuse for the Food and Drug Administration and the Nixon administration to put the whole research project on hold. And so I think that Leary played his role, but official medicine and official um, psychotherapy was so much against this type of treatment that if Leary hadn't gone off the deep end, 
somebody else would have or they would have found somebody uh, else to blame. That's a good Remember point. that Richard Nixon called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. And Elvis was his drug czar. Elvis <laughs> went to visit Nixon and came away with a badge. He became an honorary deputy. And, and that is the time that poor Elvis was pumping himself full of legal drugs which ultimately did him in and made him fat and bloated. And, of course, uh, that was no strike against him because that was prescribed by a physician exactly. and that was legal. That's medicine, not drugs. That's medicine, yeah. right. Yeah, that was one that. of the great ironies of that era. You know, I was interviewing uh, a friend of mine, Pete McCormick, who's a documentary filmmaker, a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned, I don't remember his source, maybe you can confirm or deny this, but he had heard from someone on, you know, uh, solid ground that Elvis uh, often came in his pants during concerts, that he, got, he was so into the music that he would ejaculate on stage and he'd have to go backstage and change pants. Oh, yes, yes. This is not only true of Elvis. This oh, really? Of many rock musicians. <laughs> Absolutely. Enlighten us. Yeah, who who would, else? Oh, I have, I have David seen Byrne? this in person <laughs> through my contact with the Grateful Dead and being backstage. Really? I've heard about it from groupies and members of the entourage that they get so hyped up that uh, now we're talking about the male singers, first of all, they get erections. Tom Jones was noted for his erections, and people would actually. Well, he's getting watch panties them. thrown at him. I mean, you know, the women are throwing their panties Absolutely. at him. What, who right, wouldn't get right. an erection? And yes, and some of them would ejaculate during the performance. And the women got wrought up also. We don't know as much about them because their ejaculation is not quite as obvious to the. Right. Right, and they're all wearing black anyway on That's stage, right. you know, right. how can you tell? Uh, I, sh I should mention that another area, I mean, you know, you think of anything interesting, and that's what you're an expert on. Altered states of consciousness, dreams, uh, and sexuality, right? You've also published a lot of sexuality, you've done a lot of research in sexuality. Yes. So this talk about ejaculating rock stars is not outside your, your area of expertise. No, not at all. <laughs> So, so let's talk and, and, a little and, bit and about music. The most famous experiment we do to dream telepathy was a little pilot study that Jerry Garcia suggested to us. Right. This was the concert uh, yes, visualization. Yes, we were going to be playing six concerts in Long Island. And halfway through the gig, a sign flashed on the screen. You were about to participate in an ESP experiment. And then... The next sign said, Malcolm Besant is in the Dream Laboratory at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. You are going to see a photograph. No, you are going to see an art print. Look at this art print and try to send it to him. And then the um, staff member of our Dream Laboratory would throw a coin, and one coin would be one slide, one coin would be another slide, and on the screen was this big, super big art print of an emotional portrayal by some famous artist. And then the dead would talk about the art print, and by that time the audience was under the influence of 
one <laughs> substance or another, so they went along with it. Yeah. So there's no music going on. They, sh they stopped the show for this? Yeah, they did. But then they started the music again while the picture remained on the screen. Ah, okay. Remained on the screen for about half an hour. And then our dreamer, whose name was Malcolm Besant, who was an English psychic, um, would be trying to incorporate that image into his dreams. And he was, he was quite successful. It was only six attempts, but we got what we call borderline statistical significance for those six nights. Oh, excellent. From and a bunch of trippers at a concert. That's all right. Six concerts. Six yes, concerts. Yes. And yeah. now there's a Grateful Dead's archives at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and they want to have a special exhibit devoted to that experiment. And I just found out that our laboratory assistant saved all 12 of those slides. Oh, great. And so we know exactly what pictures were used. And he is going to donate them to the archives. In the meantime, the article was printed in a dentistry journal, by the way. And... <laughs> One of the great regrets of my life is I didn't have the Grateful Dead sign a few copies. Ah. Those are collector's items. I could be retired by now. Now, you you once bragged to me that you have seen the penises of every one of the Grateful Dead. A few of them. No, not <laughs> A few of, of them. them. It wasn't every one. And I'm not saying I bragged. <laughs> I mentioned you it. You mentioned it. And what was the context? They were, they were peeing in a campfire or something? The context was that Mickey Hart had gotten a new rifle and wanted to try it out <laughs> on his rifle range. Oh, boy. And so they went off to the rifle range, which was sort of a sacred place. And, of course, um, many of them had been drinking beer at the house. And before they used the uh, rifles, they had to urinate. So they did this in a little ceremony, like in a circle, <laughs> with me included. You know, it was no big deal, but I was saying... Just think of all of the female fans who would love to know the details, and they're not getting any. Well, and, and some of the male fans, you know. And let's, some let's not leave out the male fans, too. Yes, that appeals to everybody. <laughs> so anyway, that was a very notable afternoon because after everybody had tried out their the old rifle, Mickey said to me, as a courtesy, Stan, would you like to try, not knowing that I actually had practiced riflery at summer camp. And I have a badge from the National Riflery Association making me sharpshooter first bar. <laughs> and I have the bullseyes on the targets to prove it. <laughs> this was back in the 19, um, early 19, late 1940s, early 1950s. Anyway, I took the rifle and I tried shooting one time, and I hit a bullseye. Wow. And that amazed everybody so much. That I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. You quit ahead. while you're ahead, exactly. Yeah, so I nice. just laid it down. I said, now I think we're ready for the new <laughs> rifle. And they just couldn't believe that I even knew how to hold a rifle, much less get a, the best bullseye of the afternoon. Nice. Nicely done. How so, did you meet Mickey? Because you, you and Mickey have been Well, let me finish friends. this story oh, oh, first. Oh, sorry, sorry. Because this all There's ties more. together with how I met him. Okay. 
So then Mickey took his new rifle and fired it, and then Bob Weir wanted to fire it next, and Mickey said, now be careful, it has a kickback. Bob Weir thought he could handle it, but no, it kicked back and hit him in his eye. Oh. And Bob was, oh, I'm going to have a black eye tonight when we perform. So all the shooting stopped, went back to the house, did the proverbial trick with raw meat, put it over his eye, and then they went to perform. Now, that was the night that Mickey Hart had sent a private plane to Nevada to pick up Rolling Thunder so the two of us could meet. And so, sure enough, at intermission, who should I see coming down the aisle but this Native American with a very colorful Western shirt on and beads and a beautiful woman on each arm. And I walked up and I said, you must be Rolling Thunder. And he said, you must be Dr. Krippner. Yeah, so that's how we met. Wow. Now, how Mickey Hart and I met was a slightly different context. I was at a concert with a friend of mine because I like music from India, and Ravi Shankar was playing. And his accompanist at the time was Alaraka, the world-famous tabla player. And Mickey Hart had been studying tabla with uh, Alaraka. So we were invited to a party for Alaraka, and at the party, the host said to, to me, there's going to be a musician here tonight who wants to talk to you about hypnosis. And I said, fine. So the musician did show up, and he was very dramatically dressed with a long black ponytail and black and white harlequin suit, and he didn't even want to talk to the other guests. He wanted to go to a private room and talk to me about hypnosis because he was using hypnosis with some of his students. So I listened to what he was doing and gave him some tips and told him how to keep from hurting anybody and what the danger signs were in case somebody was overreacting. And so I thought that I had done my instruction for the night. And then just as we were about to go out the door, he almost apologetically said, by the way, do you like rock music? Said, I love rock music. I heard the Grateful Dead last night. He said, then you heard me perform. I played the drums for the Grateful Dead. You had been at the concert the night yes. before. Was that in New York? Yes, that was in New York City. Fantastic. So then we made an appointment to do some hypnosis with him at Maimonides Medical Center, where the Dream Laboratory was located a few days later. And when word got out that Mickey Hart was coming, everybody arranged to have their coffee break at the same time so that when he came in, they could see him and get his autograph. And and there were like two dozen people in the, who materialized in the lobby <laughs> when he sauntered in. And he was very, very gracious, signed autographs, talked with people, came with me. We went into our soundproof room, and I hypnotized him. Very, very excellent hypnotic subject. And... Um, what we talked about remains private because it was a personal issue, but a very pivotal issue in his life. So I hypnotized him again sometime later in California, him and Bill Kreutzmann, the other drummer, and we spent hours. He has the results of this in his vaults, and I had time speeding down and slowing 
speeding up and slowing down. I had them suffused playing in the color red, playing in the color green. They were playing, playing while, while Oh, hypnotized. yes, they were drumming all the while. They were both excellent hypnotic subjects. They were both hypnotized. And in one interview, Mickey said that those hypnosis sessions brought him and Billy together so that they were like one organism playing and it radically changed their way of playing music and therefore it changed the whole Grateful Dead. Nice. Well, that's a little exaggeration, but that is my <laughs> contribution to rock and roll history. All right, beautiful. I wonder if musicians uh, in general have higher hypnotic ability than the average person. Yeah, very possibly. Because to be possibly. especially a percussionist, I imagine, you're, you sort of have to enter an altered state. To I mean, you see them, you know, each each hand and foot are doing separate rhythms, right? They're all doing different things. And to be able to pull that off, you must have to enter an altered yes, state. Yes, but you go into, you go overboard and your skill falls apart. You have to find the balance. And I have to say that uh, Mickey Hart and Bob Weir and Phil Lesh and Billy Kreutzmann, who uh, I hold in, in, in very high respect, uh, were not only excellent musicians, they knew a lot about the history of music. Yeah. And they knew a lot about musicians who had short careers, who had gone off the deep end. Oh. And within their own ranks, their percussionists um, were very short-lived. Yeah, especially the ones in Spinal Tap. some of them alcohol or, or, or drugs abuse. Yeah, yeah. You've seen This is Spinal Tap, where the drummer keeps exploding? Yes, that was a wonderful movie. Yeah, <laughs> pretty crazy. Um, what uh, Jerry Garcia, by the way, yeah. often mentioned—not often, but sometimes mentioned—he thought he might have been the reincarnation of Claude Debussy. Really? Yeah. Uh, whole Grateful Dead, the five who I've just mentioned, once went to all four operas in the Wagnerian Ring Cycle in San Francisco because they loved the Wagnerian music so much. It was right up their alley with all of the percussion in that. And all Wagner, which is better than it sounds, right? Yes, so yes, someone famously said that. Uh, musicology <laughs> of that uh, opera series. Yeah, so he thought he was the reincarnation of Claude Debussy, yes. the pianist, right? Or was he No, the composer, composer. Okay, who composed okay. Claire de Lune, uh, among yeah. other things. Ah, uh, right, and the, the sea. But the also mar. composed uh, chamber music, an opera or two. Uh, a lot of piano music. Yeah. What what other musicians? I know you met uh, David Byrne backstage at a dead show. Is that oh, right? Oh, yes. I smoked marijuana with the Who with and the with who? the band. Really? Yes, I yes. I didn't know so the, the Who story. I, Tell I us rarely smoke marijuana, but when you're with famous musicians, I mean, you don't turn down history. No, exactly. <laughs> you don't turn your back on history. So Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, the whole, the whole band? The, what? The, the who? You were with the whole band? Oh, yes, or? the whole band. That was thanks to Mickey Hart and the Grateful Dead because the two of them were performing together at a huge venue. And during intermission, Mickey said, we're going to go over it and get high with the who. Do you want to join us? I said, I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> so over I went. But the interesting thing was I had met the who several years earlier before they were that famous. They were playing in Baltimore, Maryland, where I was involved in a research project. And they stayed at the same hotel that I stayed at. I went to hear them the night before. This was in the days when the Who would um, take a guitar, and I think it was Pete Townsend, throw the guitar on the 
stage and burned it. Yeah, they smashed it up. I think yes. Hendrix burned them. I don't know. Maybe the Who did as well. I remember uh, yeah, several did. Pete Townsend smashed them all up at the but end anyway, of the show. But anyway, I was at breakfast the next morning. I just dropped by their table to tell them how much I enjoyed it. And they told me to sit down. We had a lovely chat. And I said, that was a very dramatic way to end it by smashing and burning that guitar. And Pete Townsend said, Oh, yes, that was an expensive guitar, too. <laughs> I ran into Pete Townsend in an airport once, like literally ran into him. I was with a friend, and my friend was behind me. We were rushing to get to a plane, and I was turned talking to my friend who was behind me. And I came around the corner, and I bumped into a guy. And I said, oh, sorry, sorry. And the guy just, okay, no problem, went around. And my friend was, had his mouth literally open. And my friend said, do you know who you just bumped into? I said, no, because he was gone by now. Pete Townsend. You just bumped into Pete Townsend. Glad I didn't hurt him. It's a good <laughs> thing you didn't injure him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I remember you told me some crazy story about Colonel Sanders. What, what was that? I've got like fragments of stories you've told me over the years. Well, I want to get them down Sanders on tap. I Sanders' daughter very well, Margaret Sanders. Margaret Sanders. She woman. funded some of the research, is that right? Not my research, oh. but she was a very wealthy woman and a very, very talented sculptor, by the way. Ah. When this is Danny Colonel Thomas Sanders' is, daughter? Yeah, his daughter. Oh, daughter. Oh. When Danny Thomas died, he left his money to build St. Jude Hospital, and she was the one who was commissioned to do the sculpture of Danny Thomas. And, of course, all of the famous show business people he'd worked with there, and there she was, right in the middle, with her sculpture. And so, on, after, on one occasion, uh, while well, she was very much interested in parapsychology, that's how we got to know each other, she told me the sad story of Colonel Sanders' demise and how his wife had preceded him in death, and while he was in the hospital... And she didn't tell the story in her biography. I wish she would have, but I think it might have been a little too radical. And, but I will tell it to your listeners. <laughs> you heard it he here was, first, yeah, He folks. was in the hospital, and the local minister came uh, around and said, Colonel Sanders, you all have lived a very full life and a very wicked life. I know that you were seeing women, loose women, while your sainted wife was still alive. But I'm going to pray night and day to keep your wicked soul out of hell. In exchange, maybe you could see it clear to give a little donation to my church because we need a new steeple on our church. We're afraid that the steeple will be hit by lightning, injuring and killing all sorts of innocent people. So Colonel Sanders wrote out a big check and gave it to the minister. A few days later, another minister came. <laughs> Colonel Sanders, I hear that you've had a visit from Brother Jones, and Brother Jones is now so busy burn, building that church steeple. He doesn't have time to pray and keep your poor, miserable soul out of hell. But if you could see your way clear to get a new organ for our church, I pray night and day to save your soul and make sure that you end up in the blessed arms of our Lord Jesus Christ and your lovely wife. So out he wrote another check. <laughs> and then, believe it or not, a third minister came. Oh, no. Colonel Sanders, I hate to tell you this, but 
Reverend Williams is so busy installing his new luxurious pipe organ that he doesn't have time for prayers. But you know, I need new pews for my church. If you could write out a check and give us pews, they take nothing to install. I wouldn't be doing that. And I would fill in the slack that my laggard brothers have left open to keep you out of the arms of Satan and into the arms of Jesus Christ. So out wrote another check. And he didn't have much left after that, which was okay because Margaret didn't need the money, nor did her sister. But sometime later, in her retirement home in Florida, a friend came and says, there's a new psychic, a medium in town, and I thought you'd like to go and hear him. I understand he's very, very good. And Margaret said, yes, but we'll have to enter after the lights go off or people will recognize me, and then he might get some clues to who I am, and then anything that he says um, wouldn't be worth anything. So she was very, very cautious about these things. She'd been around the block a time or two in terms of the frauds in the business. So they came in after the lights were out, and the medium did a number of readings, and you know, people from the beyond were supposedly coming and talking to the grieved loved ones, survivors. And then he said, and what's this? You know, this is a visitor that I haven't seen before. He's a portly old man with a white suit, a neatly trimmed white goatee, and white mustache, and he's wearing a white hat. Smells like chicken. And a bolo tie. And he says, I've got a message for my daughter. I've got a message for my daughter. Tell her that the preachers were wrong. The preachers were wrong. <laughs> really? <laughs> so that's, that's the one semi-verifiable case of someone speaking from beyond the grave, saying, watch that's out right. for the preachers. That's right. And Margaret knew the preachers were wrong. She was a very, very free-thinking uh, person, very spiritual in her own right, but not one that was part of the uh, evangelical Protestant tradition. Right, right. Well, listen, we're running out of time. You've got a pack for your, your trip to Vegas. Um, I was wondering, you know, you've done so much research, you've spoken, you've got friends from so many different cultures, so many different worlds. And one of the things I, I, I love about hanging out with you is, and traveling with you is that, you know, when you're traveling with the amazing Stanley, you meet people you'd never meet any other way. And you're, you mentioned Rolling Thunder. You're good friends with his grandson, right? You're good friends with one of uh, Mickey Hart's nephews as a lifelong friend of yours as well. You, you're Friendships span culture. They span the world. They span generations. It's you've got a an amazing, amazingly rich viewpoint. What what do you? What's your conclusion? How old are you? You're seventy five. No, I'm having my eightieth birthday oh, party. Oh God, I can't believe that. I was at your seventieth birthday party. Yes, I can't believe that was ten years yeah, ago. Ten years ago. Oh my and God. I'm having, I've already had two 80th birthday parties. I'm having four more. <laughs> I'm having a birthday party, a big one and a little one in New York City. The little one is being hosted by Ethel Toback, who is 90. 
So I'm a kid compared with her. She's a very famous anthropological psychologist at the Museum of Natural History. And I'm taking my granddaughter to that one to meet her because Ethel is legendary. Uh, she is a peace worker from way back, an activist, helped found the Society for the Study of Social Issues. Um, and uh, she had a party for me on my... 85th birthday party at the Museum of Natural History also. So this now is five years later. Wow. But um, You're 80, almost 80. It, it, is a, it is a span. I get along quite well with people of various ages and yeah. various backgrounds, mainly simply by being myself and listening. I do a lot of listening. So what do you, do you have any conclusions uh, about the the big issues, like what happens when we die, do you where we come from when we're born? Do you do you have any sense? What, what's your vision of the world? Would you consider yourself an animist? Uh, I know you're not a practicing Christian, but I guess you were raised in a Christian environment. Well, when you say practicing, I believe in practicing one's religion by daily activities of compassion and kindness, uh, spreading and accumulating knowledge, etc. I think that, uh, yes, I think that uh, God is in everything. In that sense, I'm an animist, but I'm a little bit of a heretical animist because God is more in some things than in others. <laughs> I think that what you would call God is present when there is love and compassion and kindness and curiosity and creativity, and God is not so much present when there is uh, destruction and jealousy and envy and warfare. So I'm not one of these people who has a value-free look on the world. I can be very, very judgmental. And I... don't know what happens after we die. All that I can say is that seeing that we're a part of everything while we are alive, we will continue to be a part of everything after we die. Just how much aware we will be of that, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me that there might be glimpses of awareness and a recall of our life and that we might appear to people from time to time who are still living and still alive. Because consciousness is on a continuum, it's a flow, and it goes in and out like a Mobius strip. And so it's really no beginning and no end. I think that life is a flow, death is part of that flow, and evolution is certainly part of the flow, I think that despite all of the objection to evolution by the um, fundamentalists of various religions, it really gives us a wonderfully spiritual view of how matter and non-matter, life and non-life, have survived and have adapted over the years. And if humanity makes the terrible mistake of blowing itself up, life will go on. The insects will outlive us all. And 
the evolution then will be more toward more simple forms of life rather than more complex forms of life to survive the radioactive blasts. But, uh, but I think evolution and the adaption that evolution um, ensconces to me is extremely spiritual. And I don't mean spiritual in the sense that the creation scientists mean it. I mean spiritual in the sense of being something that evokes wonder mm -hmm. and evokes awe. And I hope this is what I have done with my students at Saybrook University and other psychology venues that I've been in. One can appreciate science, one can appreciate psychology and the other sciences, but in this appreciation, there is a sense of beauty, of wonder, of awe that is extremely fulfilling and that, uh, for me at least, keeps me going, sees me through the tough times, which I've had several of and I'm still having, and helps me to enjoy the good times, which, thank heavens, I'm still having. Well, Stanley, thank you for your time and uh, for you, you've You've got some amazingly interesting friends, but you are certainly my most interesting friend. So thank, thank you, you for that. Quite a compliment. <laughs> All right. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you ever know said it for a headstone. Soft touch, why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a bird cage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up or give it a rest? You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time? Think about an obligation, running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.